Okay, so our reading this morning is from John 17, reading verses 1 to 26. So after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. All glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by, your, by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's been a great joy to be here over the weekend. I've absolutely loved it. I was telling my wife this morning what fun last night was. We have a phrase in England um, about the pot calling the kettle black, and I just thought when Dave was telling uh, Stuart that he needs to shave. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Stuart's is intentional. Uh, uh, you know, there's been some thought, some thought about it. It's not just a matter of neglect, but anyway, we... we, we... <laughs> We, we won't go there. Right. May I, may I lead us in prayer? 
the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding. To the simple, our Father, we come to you in our simplicity, in our ignorance. We're very conscious that without you we are in complete darkness. We really are uh, a fool, like the uh, fool who says in his heart there is no God. And so we pray that from your word you would uh, light up our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to begin by thinking a little about the gathering of Christian believers whom you are most involved in serving. It may be a Christian union group uh, at at the uni. Perhaps it's uh, a small group at uh, the morning or evening congregation. Perhaps it's a workplace group. You're there wanting to serve that group. Maybe it's ASC Youth, ASC Kids. That sounded absolutely terrific. I tell you, if you went there, you would get a chance to learn a huge amount from Sonny. You'll benefit enormously from uh, serving. You'll you'll grow so much if you go and serve in those works. You always benefit far more and learn and experience far more joy and fulfillment than anything you ever give when you serve. But think for a moment about the group that you are most involved in serving, that group of Christians. We have a kind of a couple of tours that we take people on. One of the lovely things about living in London is people come and see us often from all over the world. So we're often having people staying with us, and we, uh, if we've got time, we'll take them on a tour. And one of the tours goes past Lullingston Villa, and there's a nice walk. But there's also that villa. The villa was built in, I think, the, the second century, something like that. Um, and we love taking our friends from overseas there because you know it's been there for thousand, two thousand years, and. Um, in the villa, it was a Roman villa, and in the villa there's a little room, and the room cannot be bigger than from me uh, to Morgan over there. And uh, initially, that was the little temple where they worshipped their, foreign, their, their gods. But at some point in the third century, the owner of the villa became Christian, and they turned that room into their little chapel, and that's where they held their Christian service and their signs of... And I often take our visitors there to help them grasp. I mean, I'm not all the time trying to be bossy and teach people things, but because it gives you such a sense of what the early church must have been like. And when the Apostle Paul wrote in Corinth, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. You know, a funny little group. Really, you couldn't fit more than 10 people in this room. A funny little group of um, peasant uh, farm workers or whatever in North Kent, as it now is, gathered around the Word of God. You know, how many professors, how many celebrities, international sports stars and so forth are there in that little group that you serve? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standard. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And I want us to see in the next few moments that the place in which God has placed his glory today on this planet is that little group of believers, like the one you're involved with in your Christian service. The Lord Jesus is glorified through his death on the cross in his apostolic word, that is the word of the scriptures, 
in and through the people that he has won. That's where you're going to find the glory of God. Now, Jesus' prayer in John 17 is rightly described as one of the great high points of the Bible. It certainly is the high point of John's gospel. And from the outset, you can see that the issue is the glory of God. Let's just read the first five verses again. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So our first point, God is glorified in eternity through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The verses work like a big sandwich. I said I was taken to McDonald's. Actually, I asked to go to McDonald's, to be fair to Trevor. I love McDonald's, and when Janet's not watching, that's where I go. So that's where we went. Big Mac, large fries, chocolate milkshake, and an apple pie. That's my deal. It always has been. That's where we dated, and uh, I used to take Janet to McDonald's when we were going out. The order hasn't changed. But anyway, think of a Big Mac, a big sandwich. Verse 1 matches verse 5. Verse 4 matches verse 2. And verse 3 sits in the middle of verses 1 to 5. So verse 1 and verse... Sorry, the, set, the first half of verse 2 it is. It's, uh, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Matches verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. It's a prayer that the Father might glorify the Son. The hour must be the hour of Jesus' death. Chapter 13, verse 31, don't bother looking at it, but that demands it. The hour has come. And all the way through John's Gospel, when Jesus speaks of the hour, he is speaking either of his death, the hour of his death, or of the hour of his final return. There are two hours, if you like, in John's Gospel, his death on the cross and his return. And now Jesus asks that both God the Father glorify his name through Jesus' death on the cross and that with the work of the cross accomplished that God will receive Jesus back into his presence. This prayer focuses both on the glory of the death of Jesus and on Jesus' glory as he comes in victory, ascended, returning into heaven, job done. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I remember when the British Olympic team came back from Beijing. You know, it was a fantastic... Of course, living in London, you see all these things. I'm not really a Londoner. I don't like cities, to be honest. But there are some benefits. And, uh, you know, apart from the people there are to evangelize, there's also the benefit of things like, you know, the Beijing return. You know, we'd seen it all on the telly and, you know, the wonderful, uh, the, the guy with the Birmingham accent as we won all those bicycle rides and all the rest of it. And then here they were, they came back and, you know, glory to them as they went through the streets of London. Now, if verses 1 to 5 contain the request, verses 2 and 4 contain the reason... Why should he be glorified? Verse 
2b. That's the second half of verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those, all those you have given him. Verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So why should the Lord Jesus be glorified by the Father? Because he has accomplished on earth the very work that his Father entrusted him to do. It's like the returning army having accomplished victory now with all the heavenly host pausing to praise him for all that he has achieved. And right at the centre of this great prayer, in these opening five verses, is what has been accomplished, which is the great theme of the gospel. It's actually where we began, if you remember, back on Friday evening. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life. This is what is won, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that endarkened, ignorant pagans like you and me could actually come to know the living God. That's the glory of what he's accomplished. This extraordinary work that sort of pygmy ants with minuscule little brains like you and me can come to know the creator of the universe. That's what he's accomplished. And so he returns in glory to his Father in heaven because he's made it possible for men and women to know the living God. What glory, the glory of the cross. As he heads to the cross, beaten and whipped, mocked, spat upon, here at the cross, Jesus reveals the character of God. Here at the cross, the glory of God is on full display to the watching world. Here at the cross, the Son draws all men to himself. And here at the cross, the Lord Jesus triumphs over sin, death, hell and Satan, the glory of the cross, the achievement of the cross. Jesus, the good shepherd, leads his sheep by laying down his life for them. The suffering servant washes his people's feet by giving his life on the cross. The atoning sacrifice as he drinks the cup of God's wrath, the Passover lamb, as he takes away the sin of the world, the divine king, with zeal for his father, in the name of truth and integrity, goes to the cross and triumphs over sin and Satan, death and hell. Justice, faithfulness, truth, integrity, selflessness, sacrifice, love, love, above everything else, love, true love. At the cross of Jesus... Pardon, you know the children's song, John Edison, was described as the equal of John Stott, both equally brilliant. John Stott went on to work uh, with adults. John Edison worked with 11 to 13-year-old kids in schools. This is the song he wrote for children, one of the verses, at the cross of Jesus. Pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. I mean, the theology for nine-year-olds or 11-year-olds in that little verse is phenomenal, but the glory of the cross. 
we uh, took our kids to see the Damien Hirst exhibition for the love of God. You know, Damien Hirst, he's the bloke that cuts animals up and sticks them in. Uh, do you remember the, the artist? He cut animals up and stuck them in formaldehyde. Some of you have never heard of Damien Hirst. That's extraordinary. He was very famous for doing that. But what he did one time was to take a skull of a Hungarian princess and, in, and embed it with uh, um, 8,600 diamonds. And it was called for the love of God. It was a, a picture of death and, uh, and the temporary nature of life. And um, it was on display in the White Cube Gallery in London. And so you went in through all the dead animals and all the rest of it up into this room in pitch dark. And you were asked to edge around the room like this. And uh, the, 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 the exhibition was in the middle. We didn't know that. And then they turned the lights on. And light just beamed out in every... It was quite extraordinary. I don't know how they fixed the lights, but everything came out from this skull. Well, from the cross, glory, 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 glory. The glory of the cross. At the cross of Jesus. This is where he makes it possible for men and women like you and me to know the creator of the universe. And so he returns to the Father in triumph. In glory, lauded, praised, and adored by the angelic hosts. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son. Now, verses 6 through 19 are fascinating, and it's really important we get clear on this. You won't find what we're going to talk about now in almost any of the books on John's Gospel. What happens in verses 6 to 9 is the attention shifts in Jesus' prayer from his death on the cross to the 11 apostles in the room. And so Jesus prays that the apostles be kept sanctified and sent with the word of his accomplished work on the cross, such that God is glorified through the apostolic witness to his word. This is an immensely important step. And though it's quite technical, I hope you'll be able to focus as we go through it. And just before we get into it, at this point, we need to consider another vital question in terms of Bible reading. You know, we've talked about context, where am I? We've talked about structure, what am I doing here? Uh, we talked a little bit about content. What can I see in front of me? I, I didn't put that in last night because we had all the teenagers in. But, you know, we need to, when we see something like the vine, we need to ask if there's an Old Testament reference, how much resonance does it have? How big a deal is it? You know how some people, they find one little word that's got some Old Testament connection to an obscure verse somewhere in the middle of Deuteronomy, and then they give it huge emphasis like that when actually it's not a huge thing. Well, the true vine is a huge thing, so we gave it, tried to give it huge resonance. And, and that's what I would have said yesterday. But then the other question we need to ask again and again is, who am I? Uh, sorry, not who am I? I mean, we're not asking a kind of, you know, <laughs> existential question uh, at that point. But who am I in the text? What's to me and what's not about me? You know, not every Bible story, this may be a shock to one or two of us, but, you know, not every story in the Bible is about you. I, I'm sorry if that damages your ego terribly, but it is true. You know, it's actually about, well, the Lord Jesus. And in this instance, it's about the apostles. And 
the, the astute of you will have noticed that on one or two occasions up to this point, I've kind of fast-forwarded straight to us when I should have dwelt a bit on bits that, to the apostles, and that's because I thought we'll tackle this in the last talk. You can ask me questions about that if you want. But, you know, I am not Moses. And you hear people talk about the burning bush and Moses and have you had your burning bush experience? And, you know, give me, give me a break. You know, I, I, you're not Moses, you know. Or I'm not David. And you talk about David taking the five stones of faith and all that sort of stuff. You know, that, that's not how you read the Bible, okay? David is God's anointed king. And it may come as a little bit of a shock to you. I mean, we had a prime minister, Gordon Brown, who thought he was the Messiah, didn't he, for a while. But that soon passed, thankfully. You are not one of the apostles. And this section is not actually first and foremost about you or me. Notice who Jesus prays for in verses 6 to 10. Notice what he prays in verses 11 to 13. And then in verses 14 through 19, why he prays. So who does he pray for? It's very straightforward. You can see it there in verse 8. For I gave them... The words you gave me, they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. And then verse 10, glory has come to me through them. Now, these verses simply cannot be about you or me, because we weren't there, okay? Now, that's who he prays for, the 11 apostles in the room. Now, verses 11 through 13, what is he praying? Just have a look at verse 11, 12, verse 11 and 12. I will remain in the world no longer, for they are still, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave them. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. So what is it he's praying? He's praying that they be kept, that they be guarded, that they should not be lost. But why does Jesus pray this for the apostles? And the answer is in verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Well, he's praying for them because the world has hated them, the evil one is against them, and he's praying that they be set apart and sent. Now this prayer then is not for us, first and foremost. This prayer is for the apostles and for the witness of the apostles in the world. For the glory of God is on display at the cross. But through the apostolic witness, as the gospel word is thrust out into the world, so the glory of God is on display now in that apostolic word. That word, just as the apostles were, will be hated by the world, assaulted by Satan. And so Jesus says, 
Lord, I pray that these apostles, with this vital role of recording all that the Lord Jesus has revealed, just think if they hadn't done their job. Jesus returns in glory to the Father in heaven, job done. He's made God known. You and I can become part of the family of God, and now the apostles blow it. You see, it's all gone. It's lost. And so this is a vital part of the prayer. And if we take it and apply it straight to little me and little you, we've lost this key link, a key and important point that the church has to be clear on. It is in and through this apostolic proclamation that God's glory is displayed today, not by some magical transfer of powers. Hands are laid on one person and the hands laid on the other, you know, like they have in the Catholic Church, that Peter lays hands on the next guy, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. No, it's through the word of the apostles that what Jesus has accomplished is delivered to the next generation. Now, we come at the end of 150 years of massive assault on the Word of God. It began in the 1850s in the German universities. Today, it's continued by people like Bart Ehrman and, more popularly, by Dan Brown. Uh, But this prayer is both a prayer for the protection of the apostolic Word and the ministry of the Word and an assurance for disciples today. This is where glory is to be found, in the word of the apostles. These are those in whom he has placed his word. Here is the place that we will find his glory. Because he's made the Father known. He's now entrusted to the word, with this, the word to this band of 11, soon to be 12 apostles. And this is where you will find the glory of God on display in the apostolic word. And so as you come to that little group, whether it's the ASC kids or ASC youth or whether it's your small university group or whether it's Sunday when you gather, as the apostolic word is being taught, so you are, we are exposed, see the glory of God. You don't see the glory of God, you know, like this on some mountaintop experience or in some big tent experience with dazzling lights and smoke displays and all the rest of it. Now, you see the glory of God in the apostolic word, and so the Lord Jesus prays for protection. Drift from the word. Drift from the word. You drift from the glory of God. And that explains, doesn't it, why across the mainline denominations over the last 150 years, and now with rapid acceleration, as the mainline denominations have drifted from the apostolic word, so Ichabod, the glory has departed again and again and again and again. I mean, the latest statistics from the Church of England are so desperate, utterly desperate, in terms of youth in churches that uh, the Church of England will have no more members in 30 years' time if the statistics carry on as they do. 
And that's exactly what should happen. If you drift from the apostolic word, you've drifted from the glory of God. The world will hate those who hold out the word. The Satan will assault those who hold out the word. God will sanctify those who hold out the word. But it's in the word that his glory is to be discovered. Now, do you notice... Still, we haven't got to us. Now, we all want sermons to be about us, don't we? Which is a bit of a shame, because they should be about Jesus. We've had the glory of Jesus, and we've had the glory of Jesus in the apostolic word. Now, in verse 20, he gets to us. Look at it. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those also who will believe in me through their message. So if you thought for a moment, oh, William's really going off on one when it comes to the apostolic word, it's really, it is really about me. Well, verse 20 shows that it isn't. Okay? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message of the apostles. And so finally, Jesus prays that his people will be united and completed through his accomplished work at the cross. And the way verses 20 through 23 work is as matching pairs. And in the verses, Jesus essentially prays the same thing twice. And his prayer is that God be glorified today through the united witness of his people. And so I want you to pause again and consider that small group of men and women with whom you meet as you gather in whatever form of assembly you gather in, either on Sunday morning or midweek. You know, how many university professors have you got? Well, trouble is, at Queen's, you probably have got one or two. And having seen the talent on display last night, I mean, that there are people in this congregation who can balance after eight mints on their forehead and then get them into their mouth. I mean, it rather undermines what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says, not many of you weren't university professors and high celebrities in this world, that somebody can wear 45 layers of clothing, you know, and still come out alive, shows that we've got potential astronauts and... But do you know how many, as you look around that little room, how many, often you just think, well, we're such a feeble bunch And we're nothing in the world's eyes. We haven't got high-flying this, that, and the other. We haven't got national celebrities. And this prayer now tells us that God's glory is on display in the assembly of his believers. This is where he's placed, if you like, the precious glory that he's won in this little crucible of your eight or ten people who are sitting around the word of God. His glory is on display in the assembly of his people. So 20 and 21, that's the first part of the matching pairs. And 22 and 23 is the second part of the matching prayers. So my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. There's the word of God. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. There's the unity that the Word of God produces if we surrender to Jesus and accept his word. So that the world may believe that you sent me, there is the evangelistic witness. The message 
the unity, the witness. And then we get exactly the same thing again. I have given them the glory that you gave me. There is the revelation. He's given us his glory by revealing the Father to us. That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. There is the unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There is the evangelistic power. So that it's in this little, is the crucible the right thing? You know, when you refine something and refine something and refine something. It's in this kind of crucible of the local church that you now have, as they sit under the word of the apostles, here you have, well, unity, because we're all brought into unity through the love of Christ on the cross as we surrender to him. But in that unity, that precious loving unity, as the word then goes out from there, so you have the evangelistic power. Step one, belief in Jesus through the apostolic word. Step two, unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and God's people are united to one another. Step three, evangelistic uh, impetus. And the logic is utterly compelling. Part one, those who have faith have received the glory of God. They've received it through the apostolic preaching. Part two, because they've received it, they're now brought into intimate union with Father and Son. They have eternal life. Part three, this body of believers will now bear witness to the Lord Jesus in all the world. And so the extraordinary significance of that local assembly of God's people as we exhibit the love of Christ held out in the glorious gospel. But notice this, you won't exhibit the love of Christ held out in the glorious gospel if you don't sit under the apostolic word, if you're not united. But you won't be united if you don't sit under the apostolic word. So the logic is there in the that's and the so that's. I won't go back through it again, but where does powerful evangelistic witness come from? United witness of believers. But where does united witness of believers come from? Sitting under the apostolic word. Now please notice, people get this badly wrong. Some see the final powerful witness. Yeah, we want that. And they see that the, we really want the church. I mean, the Church of England's going to want that, isn't it? You know, we're, we're absolutely done in the Church of England. It's all over for the Church of England and for the Western denominations, particularly Anglicans, who've departed from the Word of God. That's it. It's finished. For every church that has departed, the glory has departed. But then you suddenly think, yeah, we want the powerful evangelistic witness. Oh, it comes from unity. And so they said, well, we must be united. But they ignore part one, that unity comes from the apostolic word. And you'll notice that in the Alpha movement at the moment. Unity, 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 unity. Not truth. You'll notice it in the Church of England, big time. Unity, unity, unity. Oh, let's treat sexuality as if it's a secondary issue and all be united even though in the gospel we're called to repent and this sexuality issue is considered to be a gospel issue. Oh, well, let's pretend it's not a gospel issue. Unity, unity, unity. We will only actually be able to speak to the, the world if we have unity. Uh, but unity only comes through the apostolic word. And to put it te technically, if you like, confessional, uh, congregational unity comes only through confessional integrity. 
One day, some of you, uh, and I hope it's not for a very, very, very long time, will have to choose a new rector of all saints. I mean, the people who chose last time, you know, were led by God to make a fantastic choice. I don't mean last time. Well, last time was good too, but this time it was a great choice because you've got a man who will actually insist on the Word of God, and therefore you have a wonderfully united congregation, somebody who's actually to defend the Word of God. But if some of you young ones in, you know, 450 years' time or, or, or whatever, or the people I always say, you know, if I get run over by the number 35 or whatever, when they make that choice, if they choose somebody who's not going to sit under the apostolic word, unity will be gone overnight. And then evangelistic power, gone. Gone. Congregational unity can only be realized with confessional integrity. And those are the three points that Jesus' glory, I've made him known. Apostolic witness to what he's made known, now there it is in the local congregation. And notice, what then is needed in the local church or the assembly of believers? Oh, it is the proclamation of this word, which is what he wants, what he prays for, what he's behind And notice verse 24, what he will finally bring to completion. And this is, you see, what he's achieved, he will bring to completion as he brings his church to be with him in eternity. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me, that is those who come to trust the apostolic word concerning the glory of God in the cross, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory face to face, that is, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So it's God's desire then to take that little group of, you know, 11-year-olds that you're serving in the youth group and that little group to take them to be with him in eternity. That's what God's about. And so that little group that you serve Boy, how precious it is. And how important that you, if you're leading in it, if you're a youth group leader, or if you're leading the women's work, or you're helping in a group, or you're a member, a member of that group, that you take the Word of God and the Word of God in that group with absolute seriousness. Because that's where the glory of God is found. That's where unity will come from. And that's where the evangelistic witness will be. And from there, the Lord Jesus will take those people to be with him for eternity. Well, we could spend probably, you know, a month of sermons uh, on Sunday mornings, or or on uh, at least on that passage. There's so much in it, and I really hope you will go back and read and reread and love reading the upper room. We've only just dipped in in a few places, but uh, what a place to finish! And do you know, in your week, I know particularly some of you working men, you're so busy, you're the kind of, it's so frenetically busy. But what is the most significant thing that happens in your working week? Oh, it's that little midweek group. It's that little prayer triplet that you have with two or three other blokes. You know, it's, it's, it's that Sunday morning or Sunday evening. That, that's where the glory of God is. What a privilege to be involved in it. Let's pray together.
I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Father, we thank you for this desire of the Lord Jesus that we reach the end of our lives or his return and that we are with him for eternity. We praise you for his glorious work on the cross, that we can know the creator of the universe as our father and have him dwell within us. We pray that you would help us to guard the apostolic word, even as you guard it within us, to hand it on to the next generation. And so we pray for this powerful witness that comes from submission to King Jesus. And we ask that you would extend that witness beyond all saints across the whole of this island and far, far, far beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.